Well, good morning. Welcome back to the Broadcast Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRN Sunday for Sunday, July 31st, 2022. We've got another great show for you this week. We've got members of the media, academia, and financial services standing by to analyze all the news and events for the week. So sit back, relax. Enjoy this episode of BRN Sunday. We're going to kick things off with a look with a look at the state-run retirement market. It's a very interesting market. There's some complexities and some differences. We're going to find out a lot more. Joining me on the line is Aaron Schum. He is the founder and chief executive officer of Vestwell. Aaron, so great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us on the program this morning. Yes, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yep, and, and this is great. I, and and I want to before we get into the state-run market, which your firm has really helped pioneer in terms of administration, service, record keeping, et cetera. We're going to get into those details. Let's talk a little, little about Vestwell because I like the story. Um, I like a lot of stories, but I love this story. And you and I have known each other for a little bit of time. Tell us the story, how you got the idea, and what is Vestwell? Yeah, sure. It, it's a long story, but I'll make it short. The, the, <laughs> the short version is um, I co-founded a wealth management fintech platform before this, um, and we were building that platform out. And uh, as we were doing that, our employees wanted a workplace savings program, a 401k. Uh, we were like three years in and, and we went through that process. And I had never, as like a principal of a business before, gone through that process myself and being a small business proprietor, seeing how challenging it was. That's what sparked the light bulb to say, wow, there's a better way to do this, right? There's a better way for people to engage, a better way to pull in small businesses and employees and allow them to save in an efficient way. So that that's what was the, the genesis of it. And fast forward several years later, uh, had the opportunity to actually venture off and go build it. Yeah. And 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 like you said, uh, and, and for the audience, I mean, there is a lot of innovation that goes on in this space. Aaron just took it to the, the, uh, the stratosphere. And I think it's absolutely amazing because there are you know, essentially, there's a lot of administration services that you all provide. But for smaller plans, we're going to get into this in a second. This is really a and, and mid-sized plans. This is really an optimal solution. Yeah, there's there's a obviously a lot of small businesses in this country. There are a lot of undersaved, underbanked individuals, <clears throat> and our entire focus is helping engage and get people saving to close that gap across a myriad of solutions. But really, you can boil it down to we're looking at helping people save or people helping. If I could say that, if we're we're looking at people to save for retirement, right? Save for for education uh, and save for health, and that's really where our focus lies. Yeah, really important. Let's. Let's talk about some newer markets. Um, Many people listening to this probably know the 401k, the 403b, the governmental 457b, and all the different permutations that exist. I'm not going to go through all the code sections. But Aaron, your your team has really piloted the state-run retirement program. And by that, I mean 
you know, it started off, I think, with Oregon uh, uh, as, you know, being the Oregon Saves, which is uh, the, one of the first of its kind. Then it moved to Cal Savers. Tell us a little bit about this market, uh, how you see it as someone who has entered the market and looking to, to serve it. Yeah. So, so again, our entire business is predicated on being the platform, the architecture, the, the infrastructure, the, the arms and legs behind the scene and helping small businesses and their employees or savers save for the future. Um, we, we started Vestwell. It was focused on small business 401ks and 403bs. Um, and as the industries evolved, people recognized the need for, for individuals to save and save regardless of what type of institution you work for, right? I, I worked at large banks and institutions and had the opportunity to be a part of those, you know, workplace savings programs that are curated by the benefits teams. But small businesses don't have that. And, and the, as the, the opportunity continued to grow and more and more people moved into small businesses, that problem became exacerbated and states were often left with the, with a bill or, or, or some, some um, expense that had to be paid for an individual or a business within the state and the individual employee within that state that hadn't saved for the future. And this was a way for them to really kind of catalyze engagement and savings as early as possible. So um, we were fortunate enough to partner with Bank of New York Mellon early in, in uh, our life cycle and started having success in working with these, these uh, state governments. Usually it's run through the Treasury Department uh, or the Comptroller up to the governor and helping engage and, and deploy platforms to get the, the businesses within those states saving and the underlying employees there. And, and I mentioned Oregon, California, there's Maryland Saves, I think uh, there's an Illinois program, uh, Virginia's coming online. This is, this is not uh, small potatoes here. There, there are millions and millions of people who, as you said, who are not savings. There's real opportunity here. And more and more states are piggybacking on the lessons, of, for example, of California and Oregon. Yes, absolutely. So, so Oregon was the quote unquote trailblazer, right? And, and they went out there and, and put the, um, the program in place first, had a lot of success, continuing to have a lot of success. They converted over to the Vestwall platform um, at the end of last year. Uh, so we did a mass conversion, brought them on. It's continued to grow at an accelerated pace. Uh, we just launched Connecticut uh, earlier this year. Maryland is in pilot right now. It goes live um, in, in about a month or so. We have uh, Colorado, New Mexico, which is the first joint state collaborative offering that, that's being put out there. Um, that's going to go live at the beginning of next year, this coming year in 23, and then Virginia. And then there's a, a slew of other states that are coming up um, here that have mandates either at, at some point in time across the legislative process, be it New York, New Jersey, uh, Maine, Delaware, Pennsylvania. Um, and so more and more states are getting active in this. Some are deciding to collaborate together. Some are going off and, and kind of learning from others and doing it on their own. Uh, and we're happy just to be supported behind the scenes and, and get these programs out there. And they say states are the laboratories of democracy. They're also coming up with solutions, as you've said, with retirement. If I could back up a little bit, again, many of the listeners know things like the IRA, they know the 401k. How are these plans a little bit different? So if, if someone's listening to this program, uh, our, our, our conversation, they're familiar with their employer's 401k. Um, how is this different? How is it the same in terms of uh, how it's structured, uh, et cetera? Yeah, it's a great question. So the, the state 
programs or the state offered programs. So um, are sponsored by the state and distributed to the, or made available to the employers and the, the employees of that state. It's a little different than a, a 457, for example, is offered to government employees. So the, the state program or the state employees, this is not that, this is actually to, to you know, the, the average business or the working business in the state. They are IRAs, right? So they follow the IRA mandates, but they're payroll deducted. So if you think about it, it's in traditional IRA world, right? It, it goes to your bank account right after you get paid, and then you're contributing some amount to your IRA. This actually goes directly from the payroll of the employer into that in, into that savers um, future IRA. But there's no match by the employer necessarily. They can be if they want to, but but there's not uh, typically, and there's no um, there's no ERISA responsibility that falls into the 401k bucket. So the 401k, you know, you have ERISA plan design, and there, there's a lot more legal complexity to it. Um, you can save a lot more in a 401k or a 403b than you can in IRA. But this is a good way for people to, who maybe don't have something in place that just want to put something in place today, get it up and running, and then they can look at converting to a, a 401k later on. Yeah. And you, you, you talk about that payroll deduction, Aaron, and that I think is really important. want to get your perspective on this because you, you do work in the 401k world. Having that deduction it's a lot better than having to stroke, stroke that check every month to make that pay or however you want to do it, or, you know, make that payroll deduction. I would imagine that that has helped states like Oregon, California, the others you listed really maximize the value that they're delivering to some of these businesses. Yeah, definitely. So human behavior, right? Human psychology. If we have the dollars in our bank account, it's very hard to part ways with that. Right. You say, ah, I got, I need to spend this on something else or whatever it may be. And when, you know, it's been proven time and time again that when it's, that it's, it comes out of the paycheck, you, you don't see it and it just goes into a savings bucket that's yours as the individual. You can take it with you wherever you go. You quickly start to realize that you don't miss those dollars that now are being saved for the future. So now what this ties back to often is, is the notion of auto enrollment. So as soon as, um, an individual is eligible to participate in the savings program, they're enrolled in that program. Um, and, and it's up to them. They can opt out. But when you, you have an auto enroll first, opt out later, there's a 70% chance that the individual is going to continue saving because they don't miss it. They're like, okay, yeah, I, I can live with these dollars, not in my average day spending account. Um, and then there's this other notion of auto escalate that is really important where, where every year that percentage of contribution, let's say it's, you know, 3% year one and then goes up to four and five and so on. Then when those continue to go up and they tick up a little bit more, you're saving more as an individual. And again, you, you're still not missing it. You know, that 1% difference, you're like, okay, you know, it's fine. I, I, I'm continuing to go about my, my day-to-day uh, as is. So those sort of things are really important in just kind of getting past the, the behavioral aspects that an individual saver would have. Yeah. Let's talk about the investments because I think that's very interesting as well. You know, uh, fees in, in our business uh, you know, 2012, we had the fee disclosure rules. Um, fees are important. They have an impact on your balance. Talk about a little bit about the investments in these uh, auto IRA plans. These are, these are institutional priced funds, right? So a little bit different than a traditional IRA where you might go to a, a fund company A and invest in A shares or B shares, depending on what 
the minimum balance is, the, re- the requirement to enter. So how are the investments structured? How are they different in these programs? Yeah, so they're, they're, they're always very clean, right? Very um, just kind of straightforward. The idea is, you know, remove complexity, re- remove any nomenclature that just people freeze about, right? Um, so there, there's no rev shares like this, right? That, that you see in some other uh, types of savings programs. Um, they're, they're, you know, the clean share class, um, the investment options made available are usually driven by the state advisor that it's selected so that there's a program manager which best well you know typically plays a part as a program manager and then there's an advisor that's selected um through usually a separate process sometimes together um that the state says okay so and so is going to be the key asset manager in this and usually it's an aggregation of several asset managers where they'll put in different products but they're always you know low cost you know you you know the whole goal right everyone right regardless of who it is wants people to save and save in the best way possible um which you know there, there's a direct correlation to expenses that tie into that and making sure that the fees are are, are, are reduced as much as possible yeah the fees fees matter and you can see that when you lay it out in the spreadsheet over time Hey, it's gonna it's gonna cut into your balance. So building the best and having the best access to investments important. I want to ask you about communication education because uh, sounds like uh, with and you know this very well within your own business, making sure it's it's great to build a plan. You can build the best plan possible, and that's where auto features that you discussed play a very important role. But what about the education component? To these programs. It's not enough, I would think, and I want to get your response on this. It's not enough to just say, hey, you're in. There's there's things that you should be doing as a participant, regardless of you know, what whatever, wherever you are in your life, uh, you get married, you have children, you buy a house, all these things uh, you know, are important to be communicated to and educated about. Yeah, it's it's so critical. And it's um and you're generally dealing with individuals within these programs where this is probably their first invested dollar in many regards, right? So that's a that's a big hurdle to get through in and of itself. And then it's how do you get people to save in the most effective way possible based on who that individual is, right? What's going on in their life, life events, plans, unplanned, so on. Um, we do a few things there. Um, one of the core things we're doing, and we started this in the 401k world, and, and we're actually rolling this out um, through one of the, the uh, state sponsor programs here shortly, is we built um, a, a proprietary managed account solution that is foundational around goals-based planning. So it can take into account your um, anticipated social security. It can take into account uh, outside accounts you may have. And it starts to build a model around how you're tracking towards your goals as an individual. And, and then the, the, the investments underneath can adjust as needed uh, based on what those goals may look like. But then alongside of that, we, we create a lot of content and videos and things that are, you know, articulated in plain English. So people don't get, you know, get, you know, over, I don't know, a lot of anxiety or, or that there's some intimidation around actually saving because it's so easy for us that are entrenched in the space just to talk in terms that go far over the head of anyone who's outside of this space, right? I, I, I do actually with my wife, 
all the time. But she, she's a scientist in the life science world. But when I talk about our world that we, you know, the financial savings side, she's like, you guys use way too many acronyms. So like, you have to stop, right? So we do that even internally. We, we actually even stopped return, um, referring to like the 401k aspect in a lot of regards and just saying, hey, there, we work with employers and we work with savers. Yeah. And that's it. And, and that's, that's who we're trying to help. And, and entrenching that into your mind and your everyday, you know, verbiage that you're using is important to get people to start to understand that the moves they should make or the, 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 the saving structures they should engage in based on who they are. So all, and there's a lot of work to be done, right? A lot of work. We re, we put out content, actually in, um, educational content every week we publish it. Uh, and then we incorporate those in aspects of our platform, but there, there's still endless amounts to do. Yeah, and we are all guilty in the industry of using jargon, alpha, beta, the words, acronyms are endless. Aaron, I want to ask you, you know, this is the summer, uh, Congress is in recess, uh, but there have been some bills put forth. I think we're all kind of waiting with bated breath for Secure 2.0. But when you think about this market, and, the, you know, I know that a lot of the legislative action is done at the state level. But when you're thinking about policy, how are you, what are you looking potentially forward to as it relates to the marketplace? Can we hear anything related to this market from the Congress or are you hearing other things from other states? So there's some both. Um, the, I think some of the key things, I, broadly, any legislation that's typically put forth is in the spirit and in the right vein of trying to help people save. It's often not perfect, right? As, as, as our you know, legislative process, you know, is, is definitely not. But you know, there, it gives you the opportunity to create a foundation, and then and then you, we can iterate on top of that. Um, and I think that's what we often look for. Now, you know, there's some bills that are put that were put forth, or one that was co-sponsored recently um, around an IRA savings program, right across um, you know a, a federal structure that could be put out there. I think those are great. Now, do I like the program in and of itself as like this is this is what's going to really get you know move the ball? I, I don't think so, right? Um, but even looking at these state-sponsored programs, right? People often have an adverse reaction with like, oh, the government's pushing some program on me. But what we've seen is that when the when the states offer these programs, it also lifts the 401k industry. And people start saying, well, if I'm going to do something, maybe I don't want the state program. Maybe I want to look at my business in a different light and I'm going to do a 401k or a 43B, depending on the structure. So it is that, you know, that, that notion of, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats in many ways. So the more we're doing in that regard, everyone is going to continue to rise and save more, but there are structures that need to be put in place that could help. You know, I, I'll personally, you know, I think like the MEP, PEP structure, some of these things that were lobbied um, by institutions that, are ultimately trying to save cost on their side, but not really move the needle in helping people save. I, I'm not a big proponent of those payments, right? I, I just think that's a lot of you know getting tied up in legal that's not really helping people save and it's not helping move the industry. It's just helping these big institutions maybe reduce some internal costs uh, at the end of the day. So I think you know there, there's some scrutiny that has to be placed on on aspects of the bills that are being put forth, but by and large we're behind and supportive of, of, of most of the things that were, were put forth. Aaron, last question. You, you mentioned uh, some of the states coming online. When you open your crystal ball, we're kind of in the back half of uh, 2022. What can we expect from this marketplace? And you already talked about the regulatory 
aspect of it and some of the plans coming online. But what can we expect in the end of 2022 and then looking into 2023? Because there are, after all, 50 states and even a city. I think the city of Seattle, if I'm not mistaken, has a a plan that it started, I think, or at least it was planned to have a plan. Yes, there, there's some that are put out there on a city level. Um, New York's another one that's been talking about putting out something on a, on a city level. Um, and um, so there, I think I want to say, and I could be misquoting this, you have to double check, but I believe there's 46 states that have something proposed or some sort of discussions being had around savings programs, you know, issued at the state level. Now, I don't think all 46 states or, or, or all 50 states for that matter are going to actually put something in place, but they're having real conversations about it, which is fantastic. Um, so I think it, it, there's an opportunity now where people understand that people need to save. We need to fix this. And we always kind of, um, you know, I don't want to say jokingly, but we often say it, our, it within Vestwell, like there is no one down the hall who is going to solve these things for us, right? This is on us as an industry, around, as a business, as a fintech platform to go out there and, cre- and create solutions for individuals. So um, we always have that in our mind as we're doing it. Now, where we're going and, and some of the things we're excited about is being able to engage in the small business space, right? You have 32 small business, 32 million small businesses out there, less than 3% have something in place today, right? So there's a there's a huge underserved segment. So you got to give or take 31 million businesses that could put something in place. So that, that we need to solve for, that we need to engage with. But then we're looking at opportunities to help people save beyond just you know, a, a workplace retirement savings program, right? Maybe it's a 529 college savings program for uh, someone's kids. Maybe it's an ABLE program um, for someone that has disabilities or a family member that has disabilities. Um, we're looking at emergency savings programs, right? And putting together all of these different types of savings vehicles that can be incorporated into a workplace benefit package without having to have a, a big benefit team or even a benefit team at all to, to start to determine how to curate this stuff. And you can do that and get people engaged aging and saving in the best way possible for that individual, then I think we're doing our job. Yeah. It, it, it almost feels like it's, it's a, um, that education is so, it's so important and it's not just this generation, our generation, it's a generations to come. Aaron, we're going to have to leave it there. There's not enough time for you and I to talk about this, but really enjoyed the conversation, continued success to you and the Vestwell team and, and the states launching or have those that have launched IRA programs. And we look forward to having you back on the program again very soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's great to see you. All right. Great interview. Uh, Welcome back. Great interview with Aaron Schum of Vestwell talking about state retirement plans. And we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about what's happening on Capitol Hill. There's a lot happening these days when it comes to retirement and employee benefits. Joining us on the line to help break it down, David Levine, Kevin Walsh, both are principals with Groom Law Group, an employee benefits law firm based in Washington, D.C., and they're also known fondly as the Legal Eagles. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us on the program this morning. Jeff, thank you for having us here. It's great to be here, and thank you listeners for joining us today as well. Thank you, uh, David. And Kevin, I want to come to you because some – Big news this week. I don't know big news, but it's news. Um, Delphi retirees getting – there's a bill in both the Senate and the House to reinstate those um, pension benefits. I want to get your analysis of this, and is is it a sign for more things to come in the future? Well, so I I think the big thing is that the House passed um, 
the Susan Muffley Act. Um, and, and what it does is it would restore the Delphi workers' pensions that were cut to, you know, the PBGC maximum when Delphi went bankrupt. Uh, it would restore them to their full amount. Uh, and this is, this is kind of significant because, you know, we have a retirement system that only works when people get their benefits. Um, but we also have an insurance backstop of that system, the PBGC, which, you know, while there's a lot of money there, um, really doesn't have enough money to make everybody whole. It only has enough to provide benefits up to a limit. Uh, and it also, you know, struggles where if there were a number of companies going bankrupt at once or if we looked at what the premiums are, uh, there could be difficulties in, you know, PBGC paying out all those benefits. Um, and so kind of the compromise that's been reached historically has been that, you know, PBGC pays out at a lower rate despite the fact that, you know, had the company stayed solvent, it would have paid more benefits. Um, now, if we see Congress do more of this, uh, then, you know, to a degree, PBGC becomes a supplement, and then, you know, Congress's ability to, you know, appropriate cash becomes kind of the supplemental thing. And, you know, if, if this were to pass both chambers, right now it's only passed the House, um, you'd expect to see other industries push for the same thing. Now, this impacts 20,000 retirees in a number of states. Um, it's at least, you know, 15 states. And, you know, one thing that helps in terms of getting congressional action is impacting people in lots of states. So, you know, with this, I, I'd be somewhat surprised to see this move through the Senate. On the other hand, if I look at the 15 states that, that you know, that this really impacts, it impacts a number of key states like Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Ohio, um, states that in a, in a Senate battle um, could be perceived as must-wins by both sides, and this could be a way to, to attract voters. Also, yeah. in, a, in a presidential battle, they could be perceived as must-win. So, you know, it's only passed the House. Uh, I'd be surprised if it gets in an action. But it does create kind of an intriguing step towards an ability for you know, some retirees with defined benefit pensions uh, to be made whole despite their employer going bankrupt. David, do you want to add anything? No, I think you hit it really well, Kevin. I think the question is, is this a one-off if it gets through, mm -hmm. or are we going to see this repeatedly? Because this, the, you, we're not going to get into politics here, but there was the long saga of insolvent multi-employer plans, for instance. And in the last two years, we've had legislation to shore those up. Some view it as giving extra money in a bad way. Some view it as a great, a great solution, you know, I'm not going to take a position on this in any way. The key is that it's another moment where Congress stepping in to provide money. Is it wrong? No. But the question is, is it going, is there going to be more? Maybe we'll have to see. And, hey, David, do you mind if I hit one other piece of legislation real quick before we pivot? You know, I, I think just, just because this week we might have the Senate act on, um, on a pretty significant bill um, that Senator Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Schumer agreed on, um, and they've described it as uh, an inflation-cutting bill, and it's a, a fairly large bill, you know, with basically $433 billion in investments. Uh, one of the concerns that we've had when you see a large reconciliation package come through is that uh, the retirement system could be the piggy bank to pay for it. Mm. As of now, at least, it doesn't look like the retirement system is going to be the piggy bank, um, but, you know, there's other industries out there that may be unhappy because – it is tough to find 433 billion. I mean, this is actually supposed to raise 739 billion without uh, making some constituencies unhappy. But from the retirement standpoint, this isn't something that's raiding the retirement system. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, if someone, one of the senators, maybe won the, uh, the the Mega Millions, that's that's a billion, and that's a good good start. It doesn't get you all the way there, but that's one four hundred four hundredth of of the start. Anyway, all right, that was a bad joke. Let's uh, let's switch gears, David. I want to start with you on this next topic, then we'll get Kevin to weigh in. Uh, we had a conversation several weeks ago about cryptocurrency and the Department of Labor weighing in. You gentlemen broke it down for us very nicely and succinctly. Uh, now Senators Durbin, Warren, and uh, Tina Smith out of Minnesota, Minnesota, um, sent a letter to Fidelity to explain their 401k crypto decision. First, I want to get your reaction to this. And and I had I interviewed Senator Senator Tuberville, who is a proponent of open architecture, not just crypto, um, kind of uh, talking about this. But I want to get your reaction to this letter to uh, our friends at Fidelity. Yeah, well, it's very interesting, Jeff. Uh, <clears throat> clearly, we are in a very, very political world at this point. If I, if, if, I, if I were to discuss this, this letter basically asks Fidelity to say, it says, thank you for all you do in retirement, but, <laughs> we're, tr- but we're troubled by the fact that you are uh, making Bitcoin available to folks through your Bitcoin fund. And by you saying that there's a 20% cap in here, uh, you're saying you're already acknowledging fidelity that there's risk involving with this, but you've decided to move forward anyway. Uh, it's interesting. The way I would put this is we're, we're, we're in a world and I think it's challenging whether, whether you are on the left or the right or center, whatever it is, because there are clearly strong camps to be had, whether it's ESG, because Certain parts of the political spectrum have decided, and you can see this in some states too on their mm-hmm. retirement plans, are very ESG cannot be used. Other parts are very pro ESG. And that, then you see it on crypto. Then you see it on other er, uh, types of investments. The challenge for all of us who live in who live in the I'll call it the on the ground world is what do you do? ERISA itself has actually enacted, and a lot of this is people talking and saying things. But as the law actually is written, the law doesn't say this is per se bad or per se good for virtually anything. There's a couple of things like, you know, like collectibles or something like that that could be carved out in some cases. But aside from that, ERISA is wide open. And what's happening is as this has become highly politicized, we're in an environment now where, where we are seeing this. So as planned fiduciaries, we're trying to get to best outcomes out there when the fiduciaries are making investment decisions. So we're now stuck in a position that you have to think, what does it not only mean from an investment standpoint, but is it sort of the, is it going to be allowed today? Is it going to be allowed tomorrow? And you know, Kevin, in my personal view, is that from a ERISA perspective, there are no winners and losers that should be picked by anybody under the laws written. But I think we're going to continue to see this and it's going to be evolving landscape as we go forward. And it's just a challenge. And you could tell I'm trying to walk down the middle here, mm-hmm. Jeff, but the, the, the key is, Oh, I'm trying to chime in here. It's, 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 it's challenging. <laughs> well, Kevin, I know you're always trying to chime in. I expect you to take, to take a strong willed response. So you're up my friend. Yep. Yeah. Ahead, I, Kev. I, what I found, what I found particularly troubling about the letter was, you know, when it's talking about how the 20% uh, limit implies that, that 
you know, if, if you're going to limit the amount of something that it, whatever it must be, must be, you know, dangerous. Um, I mean, that, that kind of goes contrary to most investment philosophy. And, you know, if we look at a risk, it's got a duty to diversify. Um, and you think, well, oh my gosh, you know, if there's a duty to diversify, it means all investments are bad. Um, so, I mean, I, the idea that you're going to attack something because, you know, a service provider has picked a certain amount that it, that something shouldn't be more than in a portfolio. I mean, it, it, to me, that just seems like a, a real stretch. Let me let me ask you, gents, a question. Uh, so this letter was sent to, I think, to Abigail Johnson, who is the uh, chairman of Fidelity, um, mm-hmm. and they have to come up with the response. I would imagine that the response gets entered into the public record. But how does something like this and, – and this is more of a process question for you, gents, because I, I want to stay away from the – I don't care about the politics of it, even though I know it's an election year um, and it's important. Um, but how does this play out? Like if if this letter goes to the Senate, uh, these these uh, senators, and it gets entered in the public record, does it? What does the Department of Labor, who has jurisdiction over some of these things and has weighed in, do they look at this information, or does this none of this get entered entered into their thought process and they go through a separate process? Jeff, uh, the way I'll put it is: is there a formal process here? No, but in reality. If this, it, when people respond and, and, if, and if members of, of Congress release communications, of course the Department of Labor sees it. It's just like the people in Congress, the members of Congress and their staff, see what the DOL say. So it's, it's kind of building in that circle. And the reality is, whether it is a Democrat or Republican, they have their perspectives and, and they do these reach out. And it, and it can play into what the agencies do. And, and they kind of – I won't say feed off each other, but they influence each other in, in this process. Uh, and that is just a reality. For instance, there were a number of senators who sent a separate letter a couple months ago asking some large pension plans, what do you do on certain uh, DE&I kinds of types of concepts? Mm-hmm. And that, and they've requested things, and you may hear more on that. And if you have uh, and if you have shifting power in Congress during the next election, you may see inquiries that go a completely different election. It's going different, not election, different way. Mm-hmm. So part of it is it, it's sort of the it's, it, it creates the environment and chamber. And yes, both of them talk to each other and there's back and forth. But is it a formal process? No. Yeah, it, it's it's let me, it's, let me go ahead, Kev. I was just going to quickly summarize. I know we're running out of time, but I, I think the summary there is the bureaucrats read newspapers. Um, you know, even things aren't in the official record. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 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 Kevin, uh, and I know we're out of time, but I'm going to get the last word. But I, you know, saying bureaucrats read newspapers makes a nice sound bite, but the answer is is that everybody reads everything and yeah. it feeds on itself. And I'm, I'm picking up on Kevin. Yeah, so no, that, that, was, bureauc- that was the bureauc- point I was trying to make. I was just trying to shorten it. But I mean, yeah, government workers, agencies, I mean, outside counsel read newspapers. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, wait, we're... wait, 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 we do. I thought we just listened to Jeff, Jeff Snyder. Well, you, I think you should do that in, in addition to all the other things that you do. Uh, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Really, really interesting conversation. And we didn't even get into the GA, GAO and the TSP. Maybe we'll do that next week. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks for stopping by. And we look forward to having you back on the program again very soon. Thank you, Jeff. Thank Bye, you. Guys. Thanks for I'm Jeff. And thanks, listeners. Bye, boys. Bye-bye.
Welcome back. And now we're going to close out the show with a look at what's happening in markets. And joining us on the line, he is the lead anchor for the TD Ameritrade Network, Mr. Oliver Rennick. Oliver, thanks so much for uh, joining us on the program this morning. Hey, Jeff. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, and and it's been about a month or so since we've chatted about the market. I know we had a Fed uh, interest rate hike this week. But let me start off by asking you a very – well, it's kind of a softball hype, you know, 50,000-foot view question. Where are we in this market cycle? I know the market kind of came roaring back later this week. Yes, we had a big rally and a pretty major technical event as far as index prices go and stock prices uh, and bonds. A lot of things are arguably in the midst of changing from the recent trend and in a way that is generally more favorable to most investors who are long-term, long stock owners. And the short of it is that we are in a paradigm where investors are trying to look through some really uh, discouraging economic data in hopes that uh, it will signal the worst of this uh, catch-22 scenario we're in where the Fed has to be hawkish and tighten rates and slow down the economy when it's uh, not exactly very robust anymore. So um, that might be a little bit uh, convoluted. So to maybe phrase it even more simply is that bad data is still being interpreted as good by markets. Um, (laughs) And this is the way it's been for some time because the thing apparently that markets and investors fear the most is higher interest rates. And it is almost a be-all, end-all, just sociopathy to a certain degree at risk of uh, being a little bit hyperbolic because the reality is that all the data right now is pointing towards a major slowdown in the economy that um, up until recently has always defined a recession. And even if it does not fit a definition of that term any longer, or debate it what you will, the numbers have been disappointing for about a month and a half. We've seen contractionary data in our purchasing managers index. We've seen a creep up in jobless claims. But because the employment situation overall is strong and robust enough, um, there is a thought that what matters more at this moment is not the softening of all that economic data, but the potential that it means the Fed might have to slow down its interest rate hikes. And that is the best logic uh, one can find to explain the timing and the nature and the narrative behind the market rallying here over the past uh, week and month. So, in other words, investors are prioritizing the potential for the Fed to slow its tightening program over the reality of an economic slowdown bringing down corporate earnings. And that is, in my opinion, a very dangerous um, line to take, but markets are taking it nonetheless. Oliver, uh, is this a case, you know, I want to talk about long investors. I'm not really about the short, really interested in the short term. But is this a case where it's like, okay, we see all this data and it's like, okay, I'm going to keep saying that the sky is yellow when it's really blue 
And I'm just going to – it's almost like deny, deny, deny. I mean people do that all the time, right? To we some de- extent. We, we deny yeah. – we, if we don't like the outcome and we just try to trick ourselves and say deny, deny, deny. So is that the case here, number one? And number two, um, even though we're – if it is and or not, is is it the case that you know we've seen positive markets the last uh, 10 days, I think you said um, – you know, if you're the long investor, I, th- I guess you have to recognize that we're still going to see some volatility. That the game is not over, and and, and the rocky road is is still ahead of us. Well, um, the way to kind of go about addressing that is, firstly, to your point about the uh, consistency of the data. It's quite consistent that the economy is slowing, um, but it's a unique event where the COVID crisis created some strange comparables where we froze the entire economy. And then when it restarted, it gave us some very big GDP numbers. And so now it's just kind of um, uh, settling back into a plateau. Uh, Those numbers are creating uh, a fairly dramatic, uh, um, typically recessionary uh, indication in the GDP decline. So you can, to some degree, write some of it off as like kind of the strange volatility of the COVID paradigm, but it's not just GDP. It is consistent data that has been weakening, job layoffs happening across big tech companies, slowing growth, and consumer services businesses that are having trouble capitalizing on the consumer spending power because they have such powerful inflationary negative forces dragging on them, like airlines, cruise lines, uh, also just um, even restaurants that struggle. And I mean, every company, every company has talked about how they're struggling with inflation. So that part is not going away. Now, on the flip side to it, it, because inflation is such an insidious problem, right now the best explanation for why stocks are reflecting recent optimism is because we're willing to accept the slowdown in the economy if it means a slowdown in inflation because inflation is just that bad of a thing to deal with. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is that the data so far from inflation shows us no such slowdown. This week's number in the PCE, which is what the Fed uses to watch inflation, they want to see 2%, is coming in warmer than the last month and warmer than expectations. So the idea here. Um, of a slowing inflation narrative is purely speculation at this point. It could be correct, and commodity prices have come down significantly, but they did that last month. And inflation numbers still went up. We saw crude oil high in March. (laughs) We haven't had a new high in crude since March, and the inflation numbers are still going up. So the idea of peak inflation is based on a um, guess about what comes next. And it very well could slow down based on what we've seen for those commodity prices. But just this week, crude oil started rallying again, and that gas is taking off. So it is just a very, very thin line to thread. And so, therefore, uh, we should, as investors, in the intermediate term, um, short term, and and possibly long term, too, still be uh, very careful about the potential for further downside in the market. Um, and, and that's where we have to kind of turn to charts and technicals and try and be honest about what we see on charts. Um, 
And um, I can elaborate on, on that if you like. But basically, the charts essentially tell us that uh, we haven't quite surpassed um, – we haven't quite reversed trend yet, uh, but we're trying to. Yeah, um, and I, I'm just taking a look at some news. I mean, the oil giants, you mentioned commodities, oil giants uh, reported record profits. Hey, hey, you know, high energy prices, uh, duh. And also, Oliver, the S&P 500 is on track for its best month since 2020, right? right? So, right. so you know, I think if I'm I'm a, a layperson, you're, you're in this – I mean, I have experience, but I mean, you're, you're in this every day. Uh, but if you're like me and you're watching this and you're like, oh, geez, you know, the, some of the data looks good, some of the data not looking good. I go and buy food; it's more expensive. I go to rent <laughs> rent a rent a home now um, or buy a home; it's yeah. very expensive. I think a lot of people are just, you know, they you don't know where to turn. I, I think you know, you, you try to have optimism because optimism is when it, is what's going to take you through the day when there are down parts. But you know, how do you reconcile? some of those things that I mentioned and then on this, on the flip side challenges with big tech, Apple, Microsoft, you know, um, there's some economic upheaval there. Meta, meta, I think is laying people off and having some challenges. So, you know, it's, how do you, how do you reconcile all that? Well, the way to reconcile it is to be objective um, when analyzing charts and the S and P 500 is still trading below last month's high. Last month's high was below the high of the previous month. The previous month's high was below the high from the one before that, and you get the idea going back to November. And so that tells us that the downtrend technically is still in place even after this month-long rally. And so we should generally expect uh, the downtrend to continue until something changes. Now, that's where the charts get interesting because we are on the precipice of change. If the stock market rallies past its June high, it will be the first time that it's made a higher high since the bear market began. And that would really throw um, a wrench into the bearish narrative because at the end of the day, the market is smarter than any one of us. And we have to respect if it's changing direction. And we're very, very close to that. So if it changes direction, it doesn't really matter what narrative we think and what we, you or I, Jeff or Oliver believe should be the case. If we start trading above our previous high, that tells us that appetite is building and you have to respect that, and therefore uh, shorting stocks is going to become a much more difficult thing to do, um, which it already has the past month, but it could well be within um, uh, the trend, and right now could be an opportunity to short within that trend. So we just have to watch to see when technically some of these uh, momentum reversals happen, and we're very close to it. So best answer I can give you is hopefully we'll have an answer next week. Yeah. yeah. Okay, last question, and I'll let you go. Uh, and I can't let you go without asking you about the crypto markets. Um, it's been a, a bloodbath uh, when you look at cryptocurrency. I mean, I think we were talking, was it close to 50,000? It was up there. It was up there. And, and you know, it's, it's considerably declined. Um, thoughts about cryptocurrency and the state of that market before I let you off the hook? Um, there is um, <laughs> a deep, deep, uh, you know, problems and structural issues and, uh, in, in the crypto market and uh, just a lack of utility still in many ways. Um, the, the biggest thing that happened in crypto all year is just um, uh, the blobs we've seen in stablecoin Luna showing that even the most savvy investors like Mike Novogratz and Galaxy Digital can, you know, lose an enormous amount uh, because they get, they get it wrong. It's just, it's, it's pretty, 
um, it's pretty much the same story. Mm-hmm. And technically, it's the same story as stocks. Crypto now, and the good thing, the best thing that's happened to crypto is that people have now come to terms that it is just an extremely highly speculative asset, which is the way I've always described it. And now the correlations with the stock market are close to one. So at least it's um, unveiled itself and shown itself to be what it is. Uh, it is just a more risky higher volatility, bigger risk, bigger reward potential than the stock market. So if what I'm describing the stock market, that momentum potentially shifting, and we start closing above previous highs, then you are going to want to be in crypto based on history because it will go up even more. Um, But it's not doing anything unique to itself. It's doing something unique to uh, sentiment in, in line with the stock market as well. And those correlations have remained very, very tight. Yeah, I mean, they used to say that they were not correlated. People used to say they were not correlated, and that simply right. hasn't borne yeah, out. Well, they're wrong. Yeah, well, <laughs> you're, uh, Oliver Rennick, always a pleasure, and people should certainly check out Oliver's uh, show. <laughs> he, uh, he on the TD Ameritrade Network. It's at Markets on the Close and Morning Trade Live. Oliver Rennick, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us, and enjoy the rest of your weekend, my friend. Thank you, you too. Thanks, bud. Bye, bye. And that wraps up this episode of BRN Sunday. Have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to, then drop us a line. And don't forget, for all the latest curated news in lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, so much more all in one place, check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content, we'll visit our website. That's www.broadcastretirementnetwork.com. And of course, our streaming partners like Amazon, Roku, so many more to choose from. We're back again tomorrow for another edition of BRNAM. We'll have a very special guest. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget, roll with the changes.